Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Rochester, Minnesota, to discuss the diagnosis and management of shock in COVID-19, one year into the pandemic. Uh, hello, I'm Jacob Jenser. I'm a uh, cardiac intensivist from Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hi, Jake. Great to have you on the podcast again. Uh, last year, we discussed uh, the importance of shock in the management of COVID-19, and you gave an impressive tour de force on managing shock in um, patients uh, with COVID-19. Um, and I'll definitely refer our audience to your paper in CHEST 2018 to review that. But before we get started, maybe you could uh, explain to our audience why is, so sh- why is shock so important to recognize, to understand, and to treat in patients with COVID-19? Well, I think you know, many people recognize how important uh, respiratory failure is uh, for patients with COVID-19, but it turns out that uh, the sicker you are with COVID-19, the higher the prevalence of shock is as well. And to some extent, it, it parallels the severity of respiratory failure. So if you look at the sickest of the sick uh, COVID patients, almost uh, about two-thirds of them will have shock, and around um, a third to a quarter of all uh, ICU-ventilated patients with COVID will have uh, shock as well. And so, as in patients without COVID, these two diseases, uh, respiratory failure and circulatory failure, uh, they tend to co-occur. And I think to some extent, they're caused by the same physiology. So, it's not terribly surprising that we see both simultaneously. And then in terms of the mechanisms that patients with COVID-19 would develop shock, maybe you could review those for us. You know, this is one of the most interesting things about uh, COVID-19 that we're learning is that uh, unlike uh, many other causes of uh, infection and sepsis, it really has a a predilection for causing some some weird things. Um, You know, many other infectious agents can cause uh, various types of myocarditis, and we certainly see that quite a bit in COVID. And uh, there's a lot of uh, very uh, interesting case reports and case series out there looking at um, some fairly aggressive forms of fulminant myocarditis in patients with COVID, and that's uh, a fairly unique cause of shock that we can see with other things like influenza, but are perhaps less common. Um, we also see a lot of uh, mixed shock with COVID, uh, where there's some cardiogenic component, but a significant vasodilatory component. It seems like this seem, uh, is related a little bit more to the hyperinflammatory state, uh, which uh, tends to be one of the most aggressive phenotypes of COVID. Um, you know, to date, I'm not sure if we're 100% confident whether um, COVID itself directly infects the myocardium. That's certainly uh, one major possibility. Um, but uh, certainly the inflammatory cytokine storm uh, can uh, badly damage the myocardium. Uh, in many cases, in a reversible manner if patients survive, uh, but it's fairly profound. But what I think is also particularly interesting and unique about COVID is uh, the prothrombotic uh, tendency that it has. And so, you know, we've, we can see some very, very strange things with um, unusual thromboses that themselves can be the primary cause of shock. Um, I actually saw a case um, during a, a recent ICU shift of a, a patient who had a, a prosthetic mitral valve. And she had syncope at home and then rapidly progressed to a very severe and refractory shock state. And uh, in the emergency room, uh, through through a, a combination of echocardiography and a contrasted CAT scan, we were able to identify that she had completely thrombosed off her mitral valve 
and there was, you know, only a trickle of transvalvular flow. And as you'd imagine, that causes uh, terrible shock. And so, uh, you know, the myocardium itself wasn't the problem. The vessels themselves weren't the problem. The, the issue was that she had developed obstructive shock as a result of thrombosis. And so the, uh, we were able to give her thrombolytic therapy and, uh, and that improved the clot, improved the shock. And uh, it was actually one of the most uh, dramatic hemodynamic recoveries I've ever personally seen in clinical practice. But that's what's so interesting about COVID is that, is that uh, you need to expect the unexpected because you can see all these different phenotypes. And although I think um, we, we're seeing vasodilatory septic shock most commonly, um, we do see these other phenotypes. And I think having a high index of suspicion for uh, these less common things, particularly when patients aren't responding well to initial therapy, is crucial. Definitely. We should definitely be on the lookout for cardiogenic and obstructive shock in addition to the vasodilatory shock. So let's uh, dial back to early 2020. And at that time, what were the biggest challenges facing us um, with regards to the management of shock in patients with COVID-19? I, mean, I think, you know, the challenges were the same for shock as for every other component of the illness is we really didn't know what worked and what didn't work. Uh, at that point, I don't think we had nearly as much of an understanding of the different um, unusual or less common manifestations we were seeing. I don't, I don't think that we really had a good handle on the hyperinflammatory state and how important that was for creating some of the most extreme forms of illness in COVID patients. And we didn't have as much of an understanding of uh, how much immune modulation was going to play a role. Um, we also, I don't think, quite appreciated how frequently patients were getting these thrombotic or uh, direct cardiotoxic effects. And so I think there was just so much unknown, and, and it almost felt like you were discovering something new every every week you were caring for these patients. And then you mentioned in the last podcast about the challenges of a bedside assessment in a patient um, where you try to minimize contact because of the risk of infection. How much did that affect the uh, diagnosis and treatment and uh, of shock? You know, I think it, it certainly made it challenging. I know that um, many, many hospitals, Mayo Clinic included, um, wanted to make sure that we protected our, um, for example, our echo, our echo techs. And certainly patients need echocardiography, and, and no one was going to withhold that from them if they needed it. Uh, but in some cases, the, um, you know, the amount of time that was allowed and, and maybe some of the um, was limited, and we were doing um, really focused echocardiogram to make sure that you know, we identified, you know, the high points as opposed to a complete understanding of the physiology. And in some cases, um, patients uh, needed to have a negative COVID test before they could get a full echocardiogram. Uh, obviously, these things have evolved over time. And I, I think, you know, with, with all the unknowns at first, we were, like many places, a little bit more restrictive. And now I think we are a little more lenient now that, you know, more and more of our um, staff have been immunized as they have at, at, at many centers. Um, but I think that it really put the uh, it, it put the burden to a little bit more on the bedside team, uh, where you know there was that uncomfortable tension between wanting to get the most complete assessment of your patient and um, trying to decide is this test you know whatever that test is this procedure is it truly necessary given that the the risk of exposure was higher for example you know things like bronchoscopy that are aerosol generating procedures. Um, you know, lines, for example, pulmonary artery catheterization, which obviously takes more time and may in some cases require fluoroscopy at bedside, you know, or you know, doing a, a comprehensive echocardiogram, really trying to decide, is this truly necessary in my patient? 
And I think to some extent, it actually made us better clinicians because, um, you know, in many academic centers, I know that we, we jump to doing some of these more advanced tests very early because we know we can get them routinely. We know that they can provide important information in some patients. Uh, and to some extent, we, you know, and I can speak for myself at least, sometimes I'll skip over some of the basic things, um, even though I know I shouldn't, but I know I'm going to do an echocardiogram, so maybe I don't listen as intently to the heart as I should. And, you know, that's something that honestly is a little bit embarrassing to admit as a cardiologist, but uh, ironically is something that I remember hearing um, in uh, medical school when they first started teaching us physical exam. Uh, the cardiologist who taught us physical exam said, look, I'm going to teach you physical exam, and physical exam is important. But remember that in many cases you're going to confirm your physical exam findings using an echocardiogram. And so I think that, um, you know, it's important to, to keep that in mind that, you know, physical exam is still important, even if you are going to follow it up with uh, objective testing. Yeah, definitely listening to our previous instructors and going back to the bedside and examining the patient first. So now in 2021, um, if, if you had to summarize the data that's available, uh, which interventions or therapies have been shown to be of benefit in patients with shock uh, with COVID-19? You know, I, I think that, you know, again, as you'd imagine, most of the studies have focused on sort of overall outcomes, uh, survival, hospital-free survival, ICU-free survival, recovery from respiratory failure, ventilator days. Those have been the primary um, outcomes that we really looked at in most of the studies. But I think that at the same time, insofar as the sicker you are with COVID, the more likely you are to have shock. I think that as you see signs towards recovery, signs towards survival, those same therapies probably also help shock. In particular, I'm thinking about some of the anti-inflammatory therapies. You know, I think that steroids probably are um, just as effective for treatment of vasodilatory shock in patients with COVID as they are in other patients, possibly even more so. And, the, you know, the doses that we're talking about to treat COVID are at least as high as what you'd be thinking about from a stress dose uh, steroid in uh, septic shock. And we know that uh, that's been demonstrated for many years to improve blood pressure, decrease vasopressor dependence. And so that's a, a well-known, you know, well-known, even despite all the controversies related to stress dose hydrocortisone and other stress dose steroids. So I think we can say with confidence that, um, that the corticosteroids that are used for patients with significant illness from COVID-19 are going to be helpful for shock. Um, I think it's likely, especially with patients who have an inflammatory shock phenotype, uh, that um, the steroids are extremely effective, but also some of these other um, more targeted agents, tocilizumab and some of the other um, targeted therapies. Although I have not specifically seen data looking at um, shock and with those drugs, I think it's very likely that they are uh, going to help. Uh, but obviously, it's all dependent on tying the uh, the underlying pathophysiology of shock to the treatment. Um, if someone has predominantly cardiogenic shock, it's hard to know um, whether that is going to respond to these anti-inflammatory therapies. I think as long as the uh, hyperinflammatory state is the dominant cause of the cardiogenic shock, then it, they probably will help. Although in, in you know some cases they can take several days, uh, and during which time patients may need to be supported with other approaches, even, even ECMO in some cases. Um, but also one of the things that we you know, have to worry about, especially with the uh, thrombotic phenotypes, is um, actually a true myocardial infarction is the cause. And trying to differentiate myocardial infarction from myocarditis in these patients can be very challenging. And th there's often no way to do that apart from doing a coronary angiogram. Um, but in, in the same way that uh, the enthusiasm for 
you know, doing other types of uh, procedures like echo was um, a little bit uh, lower enthusiasm early in the sort of unknown phase of, of COVID last year, I think that there was also some limited enthusiasm for doing invasive coronary angiography in these patients. And that actually uh, opened up, I think, a very practical use of um, CT coronary angiography, uh, which is sort of a growing technique both in the, the COVID cohort, but also in patients with acute coronary syndromes. And so I think that, um, you know, trying to identify those patients is important. Um, but as far as, you know, specific therapies that are beneficial in shock, I don't, I don't know that they, for example, looked at remdesivir and whether it affects shock directly. But again, in the same way that the whole patient gets better, it's probable that that would, um, that that would help as well. Gotcha. And in terms of selecting uh, vasopressors, uh, choice of fluid and volume of fluid, and then the adjuncts that you mentioned the last time in terms of making sure you've got the right pH, the calcium, um, any, any changes in those with uh, shock due to COVID versus uh, the shock prior to COVID? I don't think so. I, mean, I think that, um, you know, the more, we, the more we practice, the more we realize that um, norepinephrine is, you know, a very effective first-line agent and works for most patients and has relatively acceptable toxicity as far as um, uh, vasopressors go. Certainly, um, a lot of us really like vasopressin for uh, different cir circumstances. I think there's a, a controversy in the literature about when to add vasopressin. Um, some people tend to add it very early, um, potentially even as a first-line agent in some patients. Um, most of us think that it's the preferred second-line vasopressor, but we generally disagree about when to start it. Um, one of the interesting concepts is uh, insofar as COVID-induced lung disease can cause core pulmonale, and that can be a substantial cause of circulatory failure in uh, patients with severe respiratory failure, um, the question comes up of whether vasopressin might have an advantage there. Uh, there's this sort of well-known but not terribly well-described uh, phenomenon that uh, catecholamine vasopressors will constrict the pulmonary uh, vasculature, potentially worsening core pulmonale, whereas in theory, vasopressin may not do that and may uh, potentially function as an endothelium-dependent vasodilator in the pulmonary circuit. And so if patients have intact pulmonary endothelial function, then that might be advantageous. But again, if they have bad COVID with core pulmonale, they probably have endothelial dysfunction. So it's not clear how relevant that becomes in actual patients, but it is something we talk about. And we do raise the question about whether earlier use of vasopressin could be advantageous in patients with um, a more of a right ventricular failure core pulmonal phenotype. I think the real question that we all struggle with is we know that um, COVID has a predilection for uh, ACE receptors and can interfere with the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And our, our presser that directly affects that the most, of course, is angiotensin II infusion. And uh, there are, there's a lot of controversy about whether or not to use angiotensin II in patients with COVID. And I was actually just looking this up this morning because I wanted to see what, what new had been published. And there's, you know, a case series that was published uh, looking at this from a group in Italy. Um, and they found that it, that angiotensin II was effective, that it didn't seem to worsen um, pulmonary function. In fact, maybe it might have been beneficial. Um, but this was, um, there were several uh, strongly worded letters to the editor about this, um, about this re report because based on our basic understanding of how uh, COVID and the ACE2 enzyme should affect the angiotensin II levels and our potential effects of angiotensin II that are seen in animal studies, 
I think a lot of people were surprised that angiotensin II was safe and effective. And I'm not sure of what the truth is, and I think that this is an area that we need to understand better. But what, I, what it really highlights for me is how much we still don't know and how simple our understanding is of some of these complex physiologic concepts. And most importantly, and this is actually a theme that I've, I've witnessed over the years with critical care research, is when we try to understand or predict the mechanism of a, disease, of a drug in a disease state, if we have a, a very simplistic understanding of the mechanisms involved, sometimes we come up with the wrong conclusion. And again, most mechanisms in the human body are extremely complex because there's, you know, the primary regulators, the secondary regulators, and in some cases, tertiary and quaternary regulators, some of which are known, some of which are unknown. And a given treatment might have major effects on one versus the other. And in some cases, we think only about the primary regulators and the primary mechanism. But in fact, the actual clinical effect is, is based on some of these uh, more kind of arcane mechanisms. And so I think it, is, it remains uncertain to me whether patients who have uh, COVID-induced shock are going to benefit, be harmed, or neither from angiotensin infusion. And so that's one where there's a lot of people who worry about the harm, but it really hasn't been well demonstrated. Great. And then in terms of the fluid strategy that you employ, given the uh, predisposition or the, the preponderance of uh, ARDS, you'd probably uh, go for a more fluid-restrictive strategy um, in those yeah, with COVID. I, think, I would say so. I think, you know, yes, it is true that uh, sometimes they can get capillary leak and, and develop relative hypovolemia for that reason. But I think that... Um, I would say across the board in critically ill patients, we're really pushing more towards a, um, a conservative fluid strategy, uh, both in terms of pulmonary disease, but also there's this uh, growing signal of harm with fluid overload as a contributor to acute kidney injury. And certainly, uh, again, anytime you're talking about dysregulation of the renin angiotensin aldosterone axis, um, you know, that can have profound effects on the kidney, and that's always a concern. So I think, um, you know, trying to be as conservative with fluids as you can, recognizing that certainly in the setting of cardiac injury, patients may need a, a little bit higher um, filling pressure to maintain forward flow. And, and so there's this uh, attention, I think, uh, as in many other patients, trying to balance uh, just enough fluid, but, but not too much. Gotcha. And then in terms of um, any therapies that have been shown to harm patients with shock uh, and COVID-19, uh, any studies on that, or are we still waiting for data? So I think we're still waiting for data. I think one of the, you know, the big question here is what to do with uh, ACE inhibitors and ARBs, which are, are very commonly prescribed for hypertension, kidney disease, et cetera. Now, certainly if a patient's in overt shock, I think, you know, there's no question you have to hold those agents. And certainly if someone has refractory shock in the setting of taking an ACE inhibitor and getting sepsis or COVID, um, you know, that could be an, an indication for angiotensin II sort of to, to antagonize that problem. But I think the big question is, are patients, uh, among patients who don't yet have shock, do we continue, hold, or dose-reduce uh, the ACEs and ARBs? And to my knowledge, no study to date has really shown a definitive harm from continuing those medications. There was a lot of, a lot of concern ahead of time, you know, with some of these uh, ACE2-dependent COVID mechanisms that, that these drugs could be harmful. And I, I don't think that that's bo been borne out in the literature. Uh, I think it's probably prudent to reduce the dose simply because if you know someone is going to be at risk of developing vasodilatory shock, you certainly don't want to give them 
a lot of an ACE inhibitor, which might add fuel to the fire. Um, but to my knowledge, none of the um, COVID-specific therapies have worsened shock, you know, such as steroids or immune modulators or remdesivir. Yeah, definitely the importance of reviewing uh, patients' meds uh, when they get to the ICU. So, uh, Jake, I want to turn our attention to um, ECMO, and then after that to um, managing uh, patients uh, with critical illness, specifically in the cardiac ICU. Um, so maybe you could yeah. share with us uh, the experiences um, that you've had with ECMO and COVID-19, and then after that, any challenges that you've had in managing patients with specific cardiac issues, myocardial infarction, because there was a lot of collateral damage reported um, early on in the, in the pandemic where patients were either coming to the hospital late because uh, they didn't want to get exposed to COVID-19, and then there also, as you said, were reports of COVID-19 increasing the risk of um, uh, cardiac disease. Absolutely. You know, so ECMO has, has been clearly shown to be um, an effective strategy for the sickest of the sick COVID patients. Um, you know, there was certainly this concern on in the early phases that you know, there might be futility, that some patients with COVID were just too sick and they were going to die whether you put them on ECMO or not. Um, the same concern was actually raised about cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which is one of the worst aerosol-generating procedures in theory. And so there were, um, you know, there were questions about whether we should even be using, you know, doing chest compressions on COVID patients, whether we should even be doing ECMO. And I think that, you know, certainly patients with COVID who deteriorate to the point of needing ECMO are very sick and very likely to die. And ECMO is, of course, an extremely resource-intensive therapy. I know in the state of Minnesota, they were really trying to make sure that they shared the ECMO resources, which were limited. They tried to make it very equitable. And so there were circumstances where patients who were marginal ECMO candidates based on, for example, age, comorbidities, some of those factors that we would use to decide on ECMO in the, you know, the non-COVID era um, might have to be turned down because if you had one ECMO circuit remaining in the state, it wasn't clear whether the patient that was, you know, maybe less likely to survive based on their chronic comorbidities was the right patient to use it on. And so I know that, you know, anytime you talk about rationing of care, there's, there's always controversy. But I think that with ECMO, there's always been some degree of rationing um, simply because you don't want to use a, a limited, very resource-intensive therapy on a patient who you think will, um, will not survive even with the therapy. And so I think that um, at, you know, I, I'm a huge proponent of, uh, of logical patient selection when it comes to ECMO. And uh, there are certain populations that we know are going to have worse outcomes um, with ECMO. And, and one example would be patients that are cannulated for ECMO during cardiac arrest. With or without COVID, that's a much riskier population. We know that. And we've known that for years. And so it there were circumstances where you'd say, look, you know, we can't use the last, the last ECMO circuit on this patient who is currently coding. We know that their chances of survival are much lower than a person who's cannulated with a pulse. Um, and so we, we can't use this resource on this extremely high-risk patient. We have, to, we have to try and select it for a, you know, intermediate high-risk or, or medium-risk patient. And I think that that I think that, you know, that obviously can leave a bad taste in people's mouths, but I think it's a, nece I think it's a necessity. And I think that, um, you know, that it was something that we had to come to grips with. Um, but I know that we have had, um, we've had good success with the, the properly selected patients with COVID who are uh, selected for ECMO. Obviously, it's, you know, they have, they have hard recoveries. You know, those are patients who 
even in the pre the pre COVID era would have had um, post intensive care syndrome and and, and long recovery times. Um, and I don't know that the that we're necessarily seeing that the ones with um, COVID are dramatically different. I think the biggest concern with ECMO is that if you have a prothrombotic patient, um, we know that that thrombosis is a big problem in uh, in ECMO even you know again in the pre COVID era. And so now you talk about patients with a a prothrombotic phenotype, patients who are at risk of infection, who you're giving immunosuppressants to to, to turn down the COVID inflammatory response. It's definitely a big challenge. Um, but I think that in the same way that we were highly successful using ECMO in the, in the bad swine flu patients, um, you know, back in the day, I think that uh, we've, we've seen similar successes with the COVID patients, you know, recognizing that uh, it's always a challenge and that these are going to be patients who have you know, where complications are the rule rather than the exception. And it's simply uh, being diligent about preventing what can be prevented, recognizing complications early, addressing them in the most effective manner possible, and really trying to, um, you know, to keep supporting the, the patients who, um, who are, you know, showing signs of uh, viability. As far as your second question about, uh, you know, cardiovascular illness, you know, this is something that's um, really very, um, a very complicated question to answer for a couple of reasons. So first of all, um, you know, I practice in the cardiac intensive care unit, and so uh, Mayo was uh, able, I think, to expand the, the medical ICU capacity um, so that uh, we, didn't, we didn't have to break down our cardiac ICU. However, um, there's a lot of centers that actually essentially abolished the distinction between a cardiac ICU, a medical ICU, a surgical ICU, and they really just said, look, these are ICUs. An ICU bed is an ICU bed. An ICU trained doctor is an ICU trained doctor. Um, you know, we're not going to make a distinction. And so I know that many of my colleagues who, um, who are, um, you know, uh, dual board certified like myself with both critical care and cardiology training, a lot of them were, were really just running COVID units and were really purely utilizing their, their critical care skills. And I know that um, some, some of them, uh, uh, wrote a paper that I was one of the minor authors on, really talking about how, in the setting of these dramatic surges in uh, ICU uh, requirements and, and COVID patient volumes, uh, you know, we really need to be uh, thoughtful about how, you know, a critical care trained doctor can take care of patients anywhere, and uh, we don't necessarily need to make these distinctions. Um, that being said, you know, I think that, uh, you know, COVID really has caused a, um, a dramatic increase in the need for cardiac critical care as a, as a subspecialty, not only to care for the cardiovascular manifestations of COVID patients that are, you know, purely due to COVID, and we've sort of highlighted some of those, you know, myocarditis and, and uh, you know, cardiogenic or mixed cardiogenic vasodilatory shock, um, some of those, you know, things that are just due to the COVID. But I think the, the issue of COVID triggering other cardiovascular events is a big one, and certainly, patients who have cardiovascular events totally unrelated to COVID but end up coming late to, um, to seek care. I think these are, these are crucial problems. Um, you know, I definitely uh, vividly remember a patient um, that came in and he was, you know, for all the world, looked like a run-of-the-mill uh, VF arrest, uh, out-of-hospital arrest patient. And at first, it didn't seem like anything was unusual about his case. And then he came back COVID positive, and we're still like, hmm, interesting. Is this, is this cause or is this coincidence? And then uh, his troponin levels, you know, were initially not very high, but that went, then went up extremely high. And we said, you know, gosh, is this a, 
myocardial infarction triggered by COVID? Was this a COVID myocarditis? Certainly either one could cause um, unstable arrhythmias and cardiac arrest. Um, in the end, he um, ended up uh, getting a coronary angiogram and did not have any coronary disease, but he did have a very substantial reduction in his uh, myocardial systolic function. He was in cardiogenic shock, um, but he actually recovered, and his EF was, uh, excuse me, his ejection fraction was at, at one point probably in the 20s during um, targeted temperature management, but then recovered to the 40s spontaneously. And so I think that that was kind of a, a pretty, uh, in retrospect, a pretty clear-cut case of COVID myocarditis with reversible myocardial dysfunction, um, you know, causing as well as ventricular arrhythmias. And that patient recovered. You know, I think we treated him with steroids from Desivere. Um, this was before we knew that uh, tocilizumab was potentially beneficial. Um, and so that was kind of a, you know, kind of a, a microcosm of what we see. But, you know, gosh, I've been seeing a lot of late presenting events, you know, patients whose MI probably occurred a couple of days ago. And that's very, very difficult. Um, you know, we're, I think we're, although it's, it's always hard to really get the numbers for some of these rare events, I, I feel like we've been seeing more mechanical complications of MI. Um, you know, I think we've been seeing more patients who are afraid to come in uh, to the hospital because they're not feeling well, who are, who are ending up with more advanced diseases. I don't know if we're going to see more endocarditis or more complicated endocarditis, but certainly I've seen, you know, some of these patients recently who um, are now having, you know, they've been waiting on their symptoms for too long, and now they've developed these complications. Um, you know, we definitely had one month where I think we had three or four patients with mechanical complications of MI, which are, you know, usually you see a couple in a year. Um, and so seeing a couple in a month is really unusual. And, and certainly it could just be a coincidence, but it's hard for me to buy that. I think it's truly patients that are afraid to come in to get their symptoms dealt with. You know, certainly in Minnesota, people are very stoic and it's not uncommon for folks to say, well, gosh, you know, I thought I would take some, take some Tums for this epigastric pain. I didn't really think it was that bad, but in fact, it was an inferior myocardial infarction that was causing atypical symptoms. You know, we see that, you know, routinely, but it seems like it maybe has been a bit worse even now, even, you know, a year on, you know, I mean, certainly in the early phases, there was a lot of data that we saw that the, that there were more cardiovascular events and more deaths than, than we would expect. Um, and people who are dying of cardiovascular events independent of COVID, we, we were seeing that and there's published data on that. But I think we still see it. And that's what's kind of scary because uh, we know that, uh, for example, myocardial infarction, mechanical complications have typically a very poor prognosis. And, um, you know, they require surgery and many patients don't survive the surgery or patients are too sick to be surgical candidates. And that's a tough one. But I think really any disease that people get that, um, you know, has a sort of progressive component. We're seeing them later. I recently had a patient who, um, you know, he had some vague symptoms and, you know, I think he got a COVID test and it was negative. So his outpatient provider was reassured and, and you know, sort of downplayed some of his ongoing symptoms. But, he, you know, eventually he came in and he um, had a really profound endocarditis, um, which I think if, if it had been identified two weeks prior when he first got his, you know, we first developed some symptoms. If he'd come in to the emergency room, had a full workup, we would have identified it early enough to intervene. Um, but by the time I met him, he um, had completely destroyed his aortic valve with this infection. Uh, you know, of course, through no fault of the patients, he was following his uh, provider's advice. But, you know, with this kind of bias away from bringing people to the hospital um, for fear of getting them infected with COVID, 
And so the, the patient ended up, I think, getting to us in the nick of time. He, one of my surgeons was willing to take on a high-risk case of a guy in cardiogenic shock um, in the middle of the night. But the patient ended up on ECMO. And, it, you know, he had an arrest as a result of this. And so it's a very, I think it took a challenging situation and made it tremendously worse. So I think that's, that's the challenge. And I know that we've, um, you know, we, we've tried to sort of streamline some of our processes. I think we've tried um, using a little bit more um, thrombolytic therapy. Um, you know, Mayo has a pretty big referral network, and there's a lot of concerns with getting patients from some of our outlying non-PCI-capable facilities uh, to our um, PCI center in a timely fashion. There's often treatment delays diagnosis delays, things related to some of the precautions that need to be taken. And so we've been trying to be a little more liberal with the use of thrombolytic therapy. Um, and again, I think that that's sort of interesting because, you know, in most places in the United States, the, you know, door-to-balloon times for acute MI and PCI are very, very short. There's a PCI-capable hospital in every other corner. And so the idea of taking a step back and using uh, thrombolytic therapy a little more liberally is a little bit strange to people. But I, speaking to some of my colleagues who work in Canada where they have more of a hub-and-spoke model, that is not remotely unusual to them, and that's their standard. And so I think um, it just requires a, a thoughtful approach, being honest about what are your numbers, what are your transport times, um, really thinking about what can be done to um, get to patients early, you know, trying to convince patients and, and reassure them that, they're not going to get COVID by coming to the hospital for treatment of their heart attack. And I think instilling confidence in the populace that heart attack is still serious and we can still take excellent care of a patient with heart attack, um, whether or not they have COVID and they, they shouldn't be afraid uh, to, you know, get the care that they need. I agree. Yeah, I think you highlight the importance of uh, being willing to adapt to the situation. And also, if you get a negative COVID-19 test, uh, you should dig deeper and look for an alternative explanation for why the patient's there. Jake, I wanted to turn your attention to um, uh, you You trained as an intensive care doctor and as a cardiologist. And maybe uh, for our audience, you could just share your experience of managing a cardiac ICU and what it took to get to where you are. Um, a lot of people think you just put a cardiac ICU banner on top of your ICU and becomes that. But you actually require really trained uh, nurses and uh, expert clinicians. Maybe you could share your experience and uh, uh, why you like doing what you're doing. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, my training in it, so I did both of my fellowships at uh, University of Pittsburgh, um, which has both a very strong uh, cardiology training program and a very strong critical care training program. Uh, the, the critical care training program in particular has a, a phenomenal tradition as one of the first um, critical care training programs in the world. And so one of the things that my program director uh, was extremely, um, extremely cognizant of was uh, you know, he wanted to make sure that every single one of his graduated fellows could walk into an intensive care unit anywhere in the world and care for those critically ill patients. And that's something that I, I personally believe in, and I think that's the, the strength of um, the strength of getting a broad critical care training. However, I also believe that subspecialty ICUs are the way of the future, and then they're an absolute necessity. And uh, both Pitt and Mayo have a lot of subspecialty ICUs. And the reason that I, that I think that, that both sides are very important is from a global health perspective, you certainly need to be able to care for critically ill patients in any community who are going to present with all sorts of different diseases. And I try to hold myself to that and at least understand the basics of critical care, even including some of the specialty critical care that I no longer practice. 
Um, but I think that the more we practice subspecialty critical care, the more we realize that there are, you know, impressive nuances to some of these illnesses and things that are that need to become rote um, for the provider. For example, um, you know, my um, one of my you know, assistant program directors, you know, one of the education chairs at Pitt, um, works in the neurologic ICU. And it is is um you know and that's and that's her her baby and she helped kind of introduce neurocritical care to the mainstream, you know she's someone who occasionally will walk around with 23.4 percent hypertonic saline in her pocket because she realizes that when you have an elevated intracranial pressure emergency, waiting for the pharmacy to mix up that drug and get it to the bedside maybe um, that may be too much time, and that's just that's kind of a you know a funny example an esoteric example but it highlights how important having subspecialty experts in subspecialty critical care uh, being ready to handle those emergencies at bedside. And I think cardiac critical care is no different. You know, we, when you see something rarely, if you only see a couple cases, you see one case a year, it can be very, very difficult for somebody who isn't a subspecialist, an expert, to be able to handle that, um, you know, with, with that kind of um, gut reaction, the, 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 um, the rote, trained, um, uh, responses. You know, if you're trying to, you know, reformulate every single time you see a patient with a rare complication, you're trying to think through exactly what you have to do every time, it's very challenging. Whereas if you have a heuristic for how you manage the patient that's ingrained from your training and your experience, it, it makes it much more efficient. And, um, and I think there's a lot of things that I've learned in clinical practice that I never learned as a fellow. And these are things that now I've, I've just seen enough cases that I, I know immediately what to do because I've tried this and I've tried that and I, and I know what works, I know what doesn't work, at least in my personal experience. And for most of the diseases we care for, there's just, there's no data. Um, there's just the, you know, there's a limited data at the very basic level, but as far as experiences with how does this drug work? At this dose, what does it do? At that dose, what does it do? In this disease, which of these doses is gonna work better? Those are things that probably will never be subjected to clinical trials. In some cases, the numbers are too small to even do observational research. Um, but it allows, you know, but allows us, uh, people like myself who have this specialized training, not just the training, but the actual experience, you know, we, we know what to, what to expect. And that's, and that's the experiential training that I think is really tremendous in subspecialty ICUs, not just for the physicians, but for the nurses. And so my, you know, I love my nurses. They are, they are so good. Um, and they, not only do they know the diseases, but they also know my practice pattern. So I'll walk in the room and the nurses will be asking for the next thing that I usually reach for before I've even seen the patient. And it's funny because sometimes I'm like, whoa, 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 you know, give me a chance to assess the patient first. But in the end, they're usually right. And so it's hard because I don't want to jump the gun and, and go for sort of a second line therapy that I don't even know whether we're going to need or not. But in the end, you know, I trust my nurses. And if they say, hey, you want me to get a bag of such and such drug, I usually say yes, because usually they're right. And if in the end we go in a different direction, I feel like uh, that's not a bad thing, because I think, you know, the efficiency of knowing what to expect and working together and practicing together, um, caring for the same patients uh, is, is invaluable. And that way, when, you know, when things are going badly, um, we, all, we all know what, what we're thinking. And, and we're able to break down into our own assigned roles so that we can do team-based care. But I think the key of team-based care is that each person, in addition to knowing their role very well, 
has a very good feel for what the other people's roles are so that they can they can know what to expect um, you know and and I think that's what's key so if I see a you know if we have a patient who is in you know hypertensive acute pulmonary edema I know what I've used in my practice that works and the nurses know what I use and they've seen it work and so they know that um, not only do they know what what I'm going to ask for they may they may be walking up the hall with it before I even ask and, uh, and and they know the doses that we use because some you know certainly doses for different drugs and different disease states might differ and they know these things and so it, it really allows us to function well as a team and I know that other subspecialty ICUs are exactly the same and I think that's one of the um, the uncomfortable tension between having a broad training where you can function in any type of an ICU, which is actually really crucial in, in the COVID era because, like I said, many of my colleagues were working in COVID units, not specifically cardiac, but their training is cardiac as well. So you have that sort of you can be a jack of all trades, but you also have your expertise and your specialty so that when someone comes in with, you know, mechanical complication of MI as an example, you know, those aren't very common, but I, but, you know, I've seen enough of them that I know exactly what I want to do. And I don't need to think to myself, oh gosh, what's the next step? You know, what do I do? It, it's, it's immediately, we know who to call, we know what to do. This is the drug you use, this is the device you use. You know, this is how we think about timing of surgery. And so I think that's what, that's what I love about my job is that I get to see only the sickest and most interesting patients um, with cardiovascular disease. And it, it gets a little funny because you know, I get asked questions about outpatient management, and, and that's not something that I do very much anymore. So it's it's almost a matter of I I, um, I may may or may not know the cutting edge for the outpatient management of some of these diseases, um, and I in some cases I don't, but I do know the cutting edge of what to do in the hospital in the ICU, and uh, and so I I kind of have the luxury of of that singleness of of purpose, and it's kind of fun to you know partner with my, with some of my other colleagues whose practice spans the ICU, spans the hospital, spans the um, floor, the outpatient setting. And so we, we try and find that balance between, you know, the damage control and the acute resuscitation in the ICU, uh, which is, you know, my, my forte, and trying to think about what are we going to do in the ICU that's going to then carry over to the floor and then it's going to carry over and translate to the outpatient. So that's kind of a, a neat uh, area for collaboration that I that I get to you know working with for example transplant cardiologists who have kind of that broader field of of view. Definitely, I think you've highlighted the importance of working in a team and the fact that uh, ICUs would not exist if it weren't for the nurses uh, the, having their expertise and um, eyes on the patient uh, nonstop. Um, Jake, I want to turn our attention back to uh, COVID. So. You want, uh, in, in terms of um, future studies that need to be done to answer pressing questions in COVID-19 shock, what would you be looking out for in the next couple of months? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I think that a lot of people have, you know, confidence that the same treatment strategies that we use for other forms of septic and cardiogenic shock are going to work well for, for COVID patients. I think that we, you know, we, we think that's probably true. Um, where, you know, you add on some vasopressin maybe to your norepinephrine first line and then for the vasodilatory component versus dibutamine as an add-on for the cardiogenic component. I, I think what I really want to know is whether, is how angiotensin as a drug fits into this and whether these um, immunomodulatory agents, whether they are particularly useful or maybe less useful in patients with shock. 
You know, so for example, if I if I were to know that my patient with shock is likely to have improvement in their blood pressure if I give them one of these immune modulator drugs, I think that would be important because you know certainly you know giving a drug that we know is going to reduce mortality is important. Giving a drug that we know is going to reduce hospitalization duration that's important. But I also think that when you're dealing with the sickest of the sick patients who now have shock and respiratory failure. I think knowing what the effects of the individual drugs are on those disease states is crucial. So I'd like to know more about, you know, how the course of shock went with, with some of these newer agents. And, and again, whether angiotensin is it a good thing, is it a bad thing? Should we be using it more consistently? Should we be using it less frequently? That, that's something that I think we want to know um, because, you know, it, it is a little bit more expensive than some of the other agents, and so we typically aren't using it first line. But if it does, in fact, have a beneficial effect on the disease state, then it's conceivable that we should be using it sooner. And so I would be interested in, um, you know, potentially knowing if you use the drug early versus late versus not at all, uh, whether that, how that affects outcomes. Because in, in standard septic shock patients, we think that angiotensin II can have beneficial effects for those patients with acute kidney injury. And so knowing whether that uh, is borne out in patients with COVID who also have shock, I think it would be very important. Because the way, the way I look at it is when you have a new disease, it's very important to have an understanding of what your established therapies, how they work. And then it's not wrong to look for new therapies, of course, but sometimes we, we use the established therapies in a non-systematic manner and it leaves a lot of uncertainty. And so if we're able to um, figure out how to use uh, what we have as well as possible, that's crucial because many underserved areas don't have access to the new fancy thing. So figure out how to use the stuff that everyone has access to first and then figure out how to use the fancy stuff. Definitely agree. Um, Jake, do you have any uh, concluding comments for our audience in terms of uh, uh, messages you want to leave them with uh, before they head into 2021? Absolutely. You know, I think the... The key, the key message that I have for people caring for COVID patients is expect the unexpected. Uh, there's a lot of well-recognized, um, relatively unusual complications these patients have, and I know that, um, you know, it's very easy to sort of become used to seeing uh, the same stuff over and over again. But I think that we have to really keep an open mind that just because we've seen a lot of COVID patients doesn't mean we know all the weird things that it has to offer. And certainly, um, when you have a patient who looks like they may have one thing, uh, you know, never forget the possibility of a, a second concomitant problem that um, you know, might be a little more subtle. Thing, again, these thromboses and weird things that may be superimposed on standard pathophysiology. And, and certainly, um, I would encourage anybody who has an interest in cardiac critical care um, to really think about it as a career. It's, it's been a great career for me. Um, I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of excitement and energy um, many of us in the field are um, are fairly junior, and we're really trying to, um, you know, make this field make this field grow and make it a a better and better career for uh, the next generation of physicians. And I think that, um, you know, I we we as a community have really a tremendous amount of energy. I know that a lot of my, you know, I know many of the young leaders in the field. Um, we're all friends. You know, we meet up at meetings. We write papers together. We sit on the same committees. And, you know, these are some of the most productive researchers I know. They're some of the most enthusiastic um, 
the people just in general. And so it's, it's a great community to be a part of. And so I would certainly, um, you know, tell people who are thinking about a career in critical care, um, you know, definitely don't, uh, don't rule out the possibility of doing um, dual training in, in cardiology and critical care. There's a lot of career opportunities, and uh, I think it's, it's been really great for me as an individual. I agree, and I uh, wish you and all your colleagues all the best, and we thank you for the phenomenal work that you've been doing. Uh, for our audience, um, definitely uh, recommend that you read um, Jake's uh, paper in CHESS 2018 that reviewed uh, the management of vasodilatory shock. Uh, Jake, wish you all the best. Thanks so much. And actually, I just uh, today found a really excellent review that I, I thought was tremendous in the Annals of Intensive Care. The first author's name is Hajar, H-A-J-J-A-R, and that was published earlier this year. It's Intensive Care Management of patients with COVID-19, a practical approach. Um, I, I just read it and I thought that it was uh, terrific. So I would certainly recommend that to anyone who uh, is interested in this topic. A big thank you to Dr. Jenser, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.